my name is Noah Chung. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the pastor here at Park Community Church, Hyde Park. So grateful as we start meeting here at Ray Elementary. This is our second Sunday, and um, you know, one of the things why we've made this shift was A, we can meet in the morning, which is great. <laughs> and then B, this space also is right in the middle of the neighborhood of Hyde Park. And, um, you know, in the past, a, a church called Holy Trinity used to meet in this space for a long time. And we're just grateful that we can use this space, that we can open our doors, welcome people, um, share the gospel, love on them, invite them to our homes, have Friendsgivings, and um, be a church. And so thanks for all of you being a part of it. We have been a church plant now for about a little over 15 months now. And so grateful for all of you and the many who are part of our church. So as Thomas mentioned, we'll be continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And as he prayed, um, we are, uh, just kind of recap, last week Thomas, or technically two weeks ago, because last week we did not have service because of the retreat, um, Thomas preached on 1 Corinthians 6 on the topic of sexual immorality. I know, really, uh, he did a really great job on it. The sermon is online if you missed it. But kind of recapping it, in a nutshell, Paul commands the Corinthians who were steeped in sexual immorality. So they were steeped in uh, specifics were that they were sleeping with prostitutes. They had multiple partners or they were committing sexual acts outside of a covenant marriage between a husband and wife. And Paul was saying to flee from it because your body and what you do with it matters to God. Every time you commit sex outside of marriage, you join two individuals that do not belong for your body, and, and the First Corinthians 6 mentions this, your body belongs to the Lord, so honor, literally worship God with your body. And so chapter 7, we get into our text for today. It's chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. And um, I'm going to read the text. I'm going <clears> to, <throat> yeah, read the text, verses 1 through 9. So chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman, but because of the temptation to have sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her is it conjugal or conjugal rights, sorry, I should know that, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better, better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me pray. Uh, Father God, we enter this time into your word. Um, uh, it's not an easy passage, even to just understand. But God, I do ask that your word would um, shine truth in our lives, but also demonstrate and display the love that you have for us and the love that we can have um, with one another. And so, Father God, give us eyes to see, hearts that are ready to receive. I pray, O oh God, that whatever words that I say that are not of you would be quickly forgotten, but that your words that are of you would not just be heard, but be heard to in, in order to do, that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word um, as you command us. And so thank you for this time, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Now, uh, let me just start with a question. Um, how did you first learn about sex growing up? How did you first learn about sex? Um, you know, for me, if I can just share candidly, sex for me growing up was like this big no trespassing sign. It was, I, I grew up in a very conservative Korean immigrant church, and sex was rarely talked about. And when it was, the only message was to not do it. It was only to, sex was only to procreate or to bear children. That's kind of what I learned, up, kind of grew up learning. And as a result, my parents or the church never educated me on what sex was, how it worked, and what scripture even talked about it besides not doing it. So I learned about sex at school with my, from my friends and online, and probably not the best places to learn about sex. Uh, and of course, in my community, if anyone had sexual relationships outside of marriage or struggled with sexual sin and got caught or confessed, they would, they would in a way be shamed or be condemned for doing it. So the overall message I heard growing up was that sex is bad. Don't do it if you want to be a good Christian. That was kind of the overall message I heard. Now, now my story might be a little bit of an extreme. Um, I don't know if it relates with you at all, but for most of us, if we grew up in the church or grew up kind of in this church purity culture, this message was quite often the norm. It isn't entirely wrong. Now, I'm not saying that what they're saying is entirely wrong, but it does minimize and does not give full, a fuller picture of what God actually says about sex in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul was speaking to the one extreme of the crowd, those who were committing sexual uh, immorality and those who wanted to basically do whatever their body felt like doing. And Paul said to them, that is not what Jesus commands. Flee from sexual immorality. But then today, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses the other extreme. They were asking, well, if we should flee from sexual immorality, then should husbands and wives even have sex at all? Shouldn't we deny all bodily pleasures, swinging the pendulum to the other side? And Paul again says, no, that's not right either. The problem in the Corinthian church was that, in, in, in one way, they prized sex too much. They treated it like an ultimate desire, almost like a god, or treating sex as the ultimate sin, something to avoid. But in other ways, they prize sex too little, seeing sex merely as a bodily function, like eating or going to the bathroom, or treating sex with little to no mystery or awe or spiritual significance. What's ironic is that I believe our culture actually does the same. We see sex as everything one minute. How can I live my life without it? Or we see it as nothing the next minute. Why does it matter who I have sex with or how I find my sexual pleasure? You know, Sam Albury, he tells the story in this book. Um, he writes this book called Seven Myths About Singleness, a great book, by the way. Um, he tells a story about a friend who has a very bizarre spoon, and I'll show you a picture of it on the screen, and, um, in a sugar bowl. And he he, it's a little bit bigger than a teaspoon, but it has a big hole in the middle. And so it's unable to really carry like sugar or salt or pretty much anything you need for a teaspoon. So when people come to his house, he likes to kind of play a joke and give it to them and see if they can figure out how this spoon works to, you know, pour sugar in their tea or something like that. And eventually, 
he reveals to them that this spoon is actually an olive spoon. And it's meant to have a hole in the spoon so that it can drain the liquid as you lift it up to eat the olive. And he, he says this, and I quote, You can't make sense of the way the spoon is without understanding what it's for, Sam explains. And then he goes on with the punchline. It is true of my friend's olive spoon, and it is true of our sexuality. We cannot have a proper and healthy view of sex without first understanding what God had created and envisioned for sex to be within humanity. So let's, if you haven't noticed, talk about sex. <laughs> That's actually the title of my sermon. Let's talk about sex, okay? Um, I'm going to be honest, Scripture does not shy away from this, and so we're going to go into this. And we, you know, we've asked this question every week in our series, how does the church follow Jesus now in this sermon regarding ses, sex in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? So my goal is to answer that question for us today. And also, like last week, um, you should see on the next slide here, um, there is uh, a QR code, I believe. If the QR, oh, no. Okay, it's okay. Uh, QR code of the, you'll see it later on, uh, for Q&A. If you have any questions, you can... Uh, snap the QR code or just text. I think the message is up there on what that is. If you have any questions about my sermon or any questions in general, and Thomas and I and our leaders will figure out a best way to kind of share um, how to answer those questions. But let me start with uh, my outline for today. It's three truths we see about sexual intimacy. Three truths. Here, here the three are. Uh, sexual intimacy is not a need. It is a gift. Sexual intimacy is not selfish, it is self-giving. And sexual intimacy is not a weapon, it is a tool. Um, so let me go. Number one, sexual intimacy is not a need, it is a gift. Now, verse one, if you look at the text with me, verse one of chapter seven, it begins with Paul, um, it, be it begins with Paul kind of answering a question. Now, if you look through the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 throughout, Paul no longer, start, no longer condemns the Corinthians about what they're doing. But in 7 and then in chapter 8, he talks about idolatry. Chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. Paul's language shifts from a more pastoral, gentle, answering question way from the more kind of strict condemning sin way. And he begins with this statement, it is good for a man not to touch, literally have sexual relations with a woman. And in verse 2, Paul is answering that that's not what you are meant to do. But in verse 2, Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul here is saying sex is not bad or evil, but what, sex, what Paul is really saying is that sex is powerful, okay? It's a very clear distinction that in the right place, it can bless others, but in the wrong place, it can do much harm. So if you jump down to verse seven, we're gonna kind of skip around here. Verse seven, Paul says that I wish that all of, all of that all were as myself am. What you were gonna say, but kind of basically, I wish all of you were like me. And Paul is saying this as a single and celibate man. More on that later. And then he continues in verse 7, but each has his own spiritual gift from God. And either it's the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. 
So where is he kind of getting these ideas from? We have to actually go back to the beginning pages of Scripture to actually understand what Paul is saying about sex and, and actually more of what is God wanting sex to be. Now, I'm going to jump around here from Genesis, and so um, just follow along. Uh, I think the slides aren't working, so it's okay, but let me just go through Genesis 1. Genesis 1, many of you know this verse. God, after God created the heavens and the earth, filled it with light and animals and sea creatures and birds, God says this in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then in verse 31, right afterwards, after God had created everything on earth, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That word for good in the original language in Hebrew, it's this word tov. And it's not something that is just morally good, like a well-behaved kid, but it can be translated as beautiful, precious, worthy, favorable, So when God created humanity, a physical person with a physical body, it was not just good, but it was very, he he and she, they were very good. And then in Genesis 2, it gives a more detailed account of God's creation of man and woman. And in verse 18, God says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So with Adam's rib, I don't know how God did this, but with Adam's rib, he took and created Eve, a woman, which is another picture of how man and woman are coming from the same origin and created by God. And then in verse 24 to 25, we see, this is a well-known, even you know, read during marriages and, and weddings, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. So first, humanity is called very good. Then God unites them together as one flesh, being naked and unashamed of one another. In this language of one flesh, I don't think we really quite understand the the power of this phrase. It's incredibly intimate. That word one, it's not just the number one, but it's the Hebrew word ahad, which is not just a number, but it conveys this idea of being intimately joined in in a unique and new way. It's the same way that God describes himself in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, a well-known verse that's repeated by the Israelites. It says, Hear, O Lord Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Father, Son, Spirit, the triune God is intimately, uniquely, and beautifully joined together as one. So marriage and sex, even, is a reflection of that same intimate unity. If we continue in Genesis, in chapter 4, we read the first time that sex is explicitly mentioned. And it says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. If you notice, they use the word new or no. And in, in Hebrew, again, I'm doing a lot of Hebrew stuff here, but it's, it's important. The most common way that they would describe um, a husband and wife having sex was this word no or new one another. Um, kind of, it's, it's different than the way we do it in our culture. We often say someone's like slept or laid with someone. That, that's kind of the more like common way. It's really kind of more of a physical way of the, the sexual act, but the Hebrew word yada, which is no, 
it's not just knowing somebody intellectually or knowing about someone, but it's knowing someone experientially or emotionally or and physically at the most deepest and authentic level. And oftentimes, this word is used more so and, and like a lot in the Old Testament about God knowing his people. Thus, sex was an intimate and vulnerable act of being known by another. That's why Adam and Eve, when before sin came into the world, were naked and unashamed, and they were fine with that. And to add on, sex also can produce new life, which is a product of that love. Therefore, sex was not simply a physical act with no repercussions, but sex, according to Scripture, is the most powerful act of oneness, vulnerability, and being intimately known by someone that God has gifted to humanity. But then in chapter 3, we know in Genesis that sin enters the world, and everything, including sex, gets ruined. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey God, and God maps out how sin will curse them as they live in all of creation. Their relationship between God gets cut off because they get thrown out of the garden. Work, if you don't notice in chapter 3 of Genesis, becomes fruitless and painful. Childbearing becomes brutal. Death arrives to the scene. And consequently, in Genesis 3, verses 16, we see um, it says, To the woman, he said, I will sh- this is God saying it, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then look at this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In essence, essence, what's this saying is that over time, because of sin, relationships will no longer be one of love and vulnerability and being unashamed, but it will be about unnatural desire, power, and sadly even abuse. No longer do Adam and Eve go around naked, but they cover themselves, ashamed of their bodies. And as a result, sexual intimacy is no longer a gift, but it has become a need. Now, what do I mean by that? How is sexual intimacy now a need in our culture and in our day? Well, an example is this. Soon, our country will be consumed by one of the greatest questions that they'll ask you for the next two weeks, especially I think next week. You will receive emails, postcards, and news feeds bombarding you with products and experiences and so many other things asking you this question. Don't you need this? Don't you need this? Because Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and I don't know what other holiday we've created because of this, but Amazon and Target, they're going to try to convince you that you need this or that, that your life won't matter if you don't have this or that. You won't have happiness. You won't have entertainment or comfort or excitement if you don't buy this product to fill that hole in your heart. They want to convince you that their products can meet your deepest need. But isn't it kind of interesting that culture and society also does this with sex? Our culture tells us over and over again, you need to have sex or find sexual fulfillment. 
because you need, whether it's physical pleasure, our relational intimacy, our acceptance, or whatever sex can fill, to fill that deep hole missing in your heart and that your body is craving. So society tells us, go for it, do it, put yourself out there, and let someone else or whatever else fill your need. But just like that outfit you bought three years ago, or that Instapot that you have now in your cupboard that never gets touched, or that Polaroid camera that's collecting dust in some box you have in your garage, no matter how much sex you pursue outside of God's framework, it will leave you feeling the same, dissatisfied, frustrated, lonely, hopeless, Sexual intimacy was never meant to fill that hole in your heart. But if we see sexual intimacy as a gift, like we see in verse 7, that means that we are liberated from the endless pursuit of trying to find eternal satisfaction in something that was never meant to satisfy us in the beginning. If we see sexual intimacy as a gift and not a need, then we can see intimacy as a very good thing, but not required for true joy and fulfillment. It means that for husbands and wives who are not on the same page with having with how much sex you're supposed to have in a married relationship, it doesn't mean that your marriage is doomed or that you'll be dissatisfied forever. It means that for those who long to be married and long for sexual intimacy, which is a good gift, it doesn't mean you are missing out or barred from finding the eternal fulfillment you were originally designed for. No matter if you're married, single, engaged, divorced, widowed, none of us are exempt from feeling sexual frustration in this world. Because this longing, this craving it's all pointing to something greater that was designed in us sexual intimacy is not the only gift god gives nor is it the greatest gift it is a shadow of a greater intimacy where you can be fully known fully loved and fully accepted in god The greatest gift that God has given to us is in his son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, took on the very body that you and I have, a physical one, and died on the cross for our sins. So that God, our Father, even though he sees that we're broken, that we're full of shame, that we have so many wounds, that we are full of sin, if we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, God will not turn to us and judge us or turn in disgust away from us because of our bodies or our past history, but he says loudly and powerfully, I love you. I know all of you, and I still accept you. I won't leave you dissatisfied or run after another partner when you no longer satisfy me. I want you. Only the intimate love of the Father can satisfy the deepest longing in our hearts. And only if we find our love in Him can we properly see that sex on earth is a good, good gift that just reflects a portion of God's love that He has for us. We find fulfillment not in the gift, but in the giver of gifts. You know, I know I went through a lot of scripture and theology of 
what sex is and kind of what are the main points. I could go longer even, and I don't think you may you want me to, but um, it, there's a lot in there. But I wanted to do that uh, because, honestly, we don't hear it, it enough. We don't hear it enough. Honestly, I don't even hear it enough as a pastor that sex is a good gift. It is not a need that we have in, in this life. So the next question that comes up, the first kind of point was the, the theology, the, the framework. The next two are, are kind of a bit more practical, and I'll go, these, I'll go through this a little bit faster here. The next two. The second truth that I want to share is that sexual intimacy is not selfish. It is self-giving. Not selfish. It is self-giving. Verse 3, if you look at chapter 7, verse 3 here, uh, the husband shall give to, her, to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That phrase that I messed up on, conjugal rights, um, it can also be translated as like obligation or duty. Um, the New Living Translation translates this verse as a sexual need toward the other. Now, it's not implying like a contractual need. That's kind of a little bit weird in marriage, but it's more of a joyful expectation of marriage. You know, one of the ways parents joyfully love their children is to feed and provide for them, right? That's a good thing. In the same way, one of the ways married couples joyfully love one another is through sexual intimacy. It's not the only way, but it is one of the primary ways. So it would be, in a way, a breach of contract or obligation or duty to withhold sex from the other spouse. And then Paul takes it up a notch in verse 4. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Because the first line the, here, uh, this is a game changer. The first line is that why the husband has authority over the wife's body, which is very much common knowledge in this time of the Corinthian church. Men own their wives' bodies. It was very patriarchal in their society, so that was common. But Paul then says that wives, too, own the husband's body. This was way before equality rights came out. Paul expresses that marriage and consequently sex is one of mutual, mutual ownership and reciprocity. It's a relationship where each, each self-sacrifices and loves one another, not by domineering the other for pleasure, but giving of their entire selves for the other. This goes back to the powerful statement that Paul made at the end of 1 Corinthians 6, which says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So whether you're single or married or whatever status you are, your body, if you are in Christ, is not your own. Christ paid the ultimate price by dying on the cross with his body, so we are to honor God with our bodies, not out of obligation, but out of joyful obedience and love for the one who gave up everything so that we could have everything in him. So in the same way, as sex was always meant to be an act of self-sacrifice for the other. It's not about getting our fix or getting my pleasure or tricking my spouse to have sex with me or how I can get out of sex this, t this time. But it's always about how I can sacrifice my needs so that my spouse can be most loved, cared for, and satisfied in this act. Sex should be one of the most self-giving acts 
married couples practice in their relationship. And one of the most selfless acts of God created between man and wife is, is, is sex, but every time that you use it for personal gain or for your own selves, it's very much like trying to use that olive spoon to pick up sugar or salt. It was not meant to serve you. It was meant to serve the other. Let me go on to the third truth here. Sexual intimacy is not a weapon. It is a tool. It is not a weapon. It is a tool. Verse 5, Paul writes, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is literally saying that do not take what someone should have away from them. Basically, that word deprive, it literally means to take something away from someone that they have possession of. But there are indeed times, now I want to be clear here, there are times where sex is not happening in a married relationship. He gives this example of devoting oneself to fasting and prayer. Um, That may be you, uh, but there are also other physical limitations, whether it's childbirth or illness or physical distance. But what's key in this verse is the last portion. He says, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, let's just call, what, call it what it is. Sexual intimacy will not always be filled with the raw passion and pleasure in fireworks during an entire marriage. Sorry to disappoint you all. That's not the case, okay? That's because it's not only impossible, but it is also an unrealistic portrayal that media and society has made sexual intimacy to look like sometimes sex uh, now hear me needs to happen just to maintain and help the intimacy in a marriage and to curb the lack of self-control that can happen if sex is not happening paul gets very real here that in times when marriage when marriages do not regularly have sex Satan will come and try to slowly tear that marriage apart. He will use pornography or masturbation or for the husband or the wife to create unrealistic expectations and unnatural desires to separate them. He will use certain persons or people to offer a more appealing relational or emotional or sexual relationship to draw a husband and wife apart from one another. He will also use bitterness, frustration, and disappointment in one's sex life to then create bitterness, frustration, and disappointment in other parts of their marriages. Or worse, he will tempt one or the other to weaponize sex, to gain control, or to get this person to do something else that they want them to do. And sadly, this is exactly the way that I think culture has used sex, more as a weapon than a tool, a weapon to sell products or ads, a, wel- a weapon to draw viewership, a weapon to gain affirmation, love, and relational closeness. Not bad things, but the means are not correct. And at its worst, and we're not, you know, we've seen much of this on the news, uh, a way to then also abuse or control others. Church, we cannot let Satan get a stronghold with the absence of sex in marriage. 
This includes, you know, this is also a truth for those who are not married yet or those who are single or divorced or widowed, um, that this is a reality in marriages. And for us as a church, we need to come around marriages so that they can thrive, that they can have times of intimacy together, whether it's helping watch their kids or listening to them or praying for them or helping them foster healthy relationships with accountability or helpful boundaries for a particular spouse. And also, though, what we see in a bigger light outside of marriage is that we cannot let sex become weaponized against one another. In this world or in, this, in other relationships, you know, as I said before, God created sex as a powerful gift. There is incredible power in sex and in that act. And it can be used to build healthy and beautiful marriages, or it could be used to destroy marriages, individuals, communities. And sadly, we see in churches destroyed because of this very incorrect use. And as we finish up in, this, um, in the rest of these verses, in verses 6 to 8, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he wishes not commands, but wishes that all were as himself, a single person. Now, we don't know exactly if Paul was married and then became single or was single for his entire life, but he advocates for a life of celibacy. Why? You know, I think uh, next week or actually a little bit later on, we'll get more into the topic of singleness. But for just kind of a a brief aside here, um, I want to say that in verse 7, Paul says that marriage is a gift, but singleness, whether now, temporarily, or for your entire life, is a gift too. To be honest, in the church, we've done a terrible, terrible job in uplifting those who are single in our churches. And we've idolized, honestly, marriage and family. And if you've ever felt this way, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that you've not felt this because for those who are single or feel unworthy because of that, especially in the church, I am so sorry that you have felt that. Society bombards you enough, and if the church does that, we have done a very poor job. Singleness is a gift that the Apostle Paul, that even Jesus Christ, and many who are in Scripture and many who serve the Lord throughout the world have committed to in order to gain a greater intimacy with God. If you don't know, marriage, and especially kids, I'm a witness here, takes a lot of energy, time, and just stress, if you want to say that. But for those who are single, I'm not, say, I'm not saying this just to, to not become married, but I'm saying this, that in singleness, you can experience a greater breadth of relationships than any husband or wife could, and not just relationship with others, but more importantly, with your relationship with God. Can I just say that if you are single right now or you will be single for the rest of your life, whatever God has you in store, you have always been a gift to the church. Don't let anybody else tell you that or anything else besides that. Because, not just because you can give more time here, but because you are worthy of his love, you are worthy to be beautiful, you are worthy, you are beautiful, and our community would not be the same without you. Um, As a church, we love those who are single, we love those who are married, and wherever God has in store for you. 
Now, the last verse, uh, in verse 9, that's kind of aside there, let me back to the verse in verse 9. Paul says this, But if you cannot control yourself, then you should marry. For it is better to be married than to burn with passion, which is another way to say sexual passion. Uh, marriage, church, is, is not simply a way out. Uh, it's not a way out, uh, but it is a God-given way or a method for individuals to pursue God without falling into uncontrolled passions. You know, I've only touched the surface here. Uh, as I mentioned, I could go longer on this topic um, because honestly, as a church, we've not done a good job talking about sex in the church. If you have any questions, um, I, I don't think the texting is working for now, but if you have any questions, please let me know. I can give you the texting if you don't want to ask it like, you know, individually, if you want to ask it specifically to me or to Thomas or any of our leaders who are women or men, like, please let me know. This is a very important topic that culture has tainted and skewed, but God has uh, a correct vision for us. Now, before I close, I want to give just two practical addresses, one specifically to those who are married and the other one to those who are single. To those who are married, let me just ask you a question. Do you know your spouse? Do you know your spouse? And this might seem like a foolish question, but that same Hebrew word, yada, do you truly know your spouse emotionally, mentally, relationally, her or his sorrows and pains and joys and dreams? And if I asked you even more questions, and as I ask these questions, I'm asking them myself because I'm also a spouse and far from perfect, is how, if I ask you these questions, how does your spouse feel most loved and affirmed right now? What does he or she need the most from you emotionally, spiritually, or just relationally? Where can you sacrifice your own time, your own comforts, or your own needs for his or her sake? What does your spouse desire in terms of physical and sexual intimacy? Not like two years ago, but like right now, this month. Could you answer these questions? If not, why not? I confess, you know, as I mentioned, in my own marriage, it's really hard to know my wife. And I'm sure to know your husband or know your wife, it is hard. I've been married only seven years now. It's not too long. We do have three kids. Um, and intimacy, let alone sexual intimacy, is way harder than, you know, I thought, to be honest. Because it's so much easier to focus on me. It's so much easier to get frustrated or bitter um, because it's not going the way I want it. Or it's easier to be busy with work or with kids or with my hobbies or whatever else and not to focus on the other. But my challenge for you as married couples is to spend some time doing an intimacy check-in. And it's not just sexual intimacy here. There's a lot of other things that are around this question. You may need to set up regular date nights or regular check-ins that you have. You may need to focus on having times of devotional together or prayer together. And even, and I've heard this from even those who are older than me, that you may need to even schedule sex. Put it on the calendar if you have to. But this is an important part of our church, part of our marriages, because sex is a tool and the gift that God has given to give greater intimacy with husbands and wives. It's not the only form of intimacy, but it is important uh, along with the others. 
Now to those um, who are not married, who are single now, or maybe just for a little bit longer, or for the rest of your life, I don't have a list of questions for you. I, I have more so a charge and an encouragement. The charge is to intimately serve others around you. You may be already doing this, but it's just a charge and a, a, an ask that I have. To not let the absence of sexual intimacy stop you from serving your friends, your family, your church, your coworkers, your neighbors, or others with your body that does not involve sexual intimacy. You know, it might be obvious, but sex isn't the only way that our bodies are used to serve and intimately know others. If sex is one of the many gifts that God has bestowed onto us, there are other gifts that he has given for us to utilize to serve others. Is there someone around you right now, a friend, a co- you know, I list the things off, someone around you that can be loved on and served during this time so that it can foster greater intimacy with one another. The one encouragement now, after that one charge, the one encouragement, and I said this earlier on, but I say it again, is that you are enough. More so, you can honestly experience the love of God more intimately than those who are married. And I that might not, you might not fully agree with that statement, but I think there is a reason why Paul says that he wishes all were like him. That you have the space, time, and capacity to know the living God who has given all things for you and who loves you and wants to know you just as much so that you can know him. And I'm not downplaying marriages here. I'm not saying that. But the reason why so many amazing men and women of faith who have become single were because they long for this intimacy that, that God promised to those who seek it. And this doesn't mean that you shouldn't get married or that you won't get married, but uh, I say this because singleness is a gift. It is a gift that you are enough. It blesses the church, and it is one of the paths to display the greater intimacy that we find in Christ. And so I've already gone way too long here, but uh, let me just answer my first question I asked uh, and then pray. But how does the church follow Jesus regarding sex in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? By valuing sex as a beautiful and powerful gift for marriage, but not as a need for our bodies because our ultimate need is in Jesus Christ alone father we thank you for this time we thank you for uh, yeah, a, a very heavy and uh, dense topic on sex but god we don't want to shy away from it because everything around us talks about sex and shows sex all the time and god i pray that as a church that we would not be ashamed of sexual intimacy, of the conversation that needs to have, that even in our missional communities or in our accountabilities, that we would be honest about how sex is going if we're married and how if we're single, we're wrestling with it or we're praying about it or all these different things, God. We, we don't want to just talk about sex that you have to flee from it or that, you know, it's just bad, but we want to also talk about how sex is good and beautiful and a gift from you. And so, Father God, I pray that for those who um, are feeling hurt, are um, 
broken, are ashamed of this topic of what they have done or what others have done to them, God, I pray that you would be near to them, that you would affirm your love for them, that you would be, um, that you would know them more and that they would get to know you, you more, that they would experience your grace and your kindness and your compassion and your intimacy that you provide for them, whether they're married or single. And I pray, oh God, for all of us, God, that no matter if we're married or single, that we would approach sex with great awe and wonder, but also carefully knowing that it is a powerful gift that you have given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.